WUFTFM, this is Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill, and I'm so happy you could tune in for this new episode of the program today when I'm going to be talking to a guest who's never been on the show before. And my guest today is uh, Dr. Brett Moore, and we're going to be talking today about exotic animal ophthalmology. Now, this is going to be fascinating because on this program before when we've talked about ophthalmology, it's generally been about the eyes of, say, cats and dogs, and uh, maybe we've even discussed it uh, in regards to horses before. But we're going to be discussing some species today that we maybe have not talked too much about their eyes. And so let me first welcome you to the program, Dr. Moore. I'm glad that you could be with me today. No, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here as well. So you uh, see primarily exotic animals, or just do you see all kinds of animals? And and today we're just going to be talking about exotic animals. Yeah, I I tend to see everything. As ophthalmologists, we are trained to be comparative in nature, but there are certain certain numbers of us, few numbers of us, that navigate towards some very specific either species groups or kind of exotics in general, and I've definitely done that. I think they're fascinating. So right off the bat, we can kind of define exotics as being the not the cats and dogs, not horses, not cattle, and so forth. These would be uh, what we might call wild animals. Yeah, wild and even sort of the extremes of those. So, for example, uh, big cats or zebras or things closely related but don't have a domesticated form. Yeah, okay, <laughs> absolutely fascinating, good. This is going to go where I want it to. So um, yeah. when we talk about ophthalmology, of course, we're talking about what? Diseases of the eye, just injuries to the eye and, and, and how to treat those conditions, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, super. So let us begin by talking about what are some of the challenges associated with treating eye problems to begin with. I can imagine that there are numerous, even for animals that are tame and domesticated, uh, but then you throw in the kind of the idea that we've, we're dealing sometimes with wild animals here, and then you probably sometimes have to worry about the safety of those who are treating the animals as well. Yeah, safety is certainly something that you brought up. And so with domestic animals, I mean, horses can stomp you and dogs and cats can bite and claw. And so there is a safety thing. But the eye itself is, for such a tiny little structure, there's hundreds of little components. And it's very complex. And so kind of taking an, it's like an entire body in itself. And there's all these little pieces. And the most fascinating thing about the eye is that every tiny little component including shape and position and thickness and basically every little cell in its position means something. And so you can't say that about any other organ in the body. So well, think about um, the liver. Sometimes there's not an, an extra lobe or your heart can be slightly on a different angle. But if anything, even a single cell is manipulated sometimes in the, in the eye, then the function can be rendered almost meaningless. And so approaching that with an animal that's moving, an animal that could harm you, is definitely a challenge. And the safety extrapolated out to exotic animals is endless. If you think of even little birds, for example, when you deal with a bird that 
spears fish like a stork or a crane, you have to wear eye goggles to prevent from them spearing your own eye. Or, of course, big birds, raptors can claw you and bite you. But really, any different species, that's one of the things that you have to think about when approaching them is because they can all hurt you in different ways, and you can also hurt them in different ways. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, what 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 good is treating an animal's eyes if you know the animal gets injured in the process? So let's let's kind of elaborate a little bit on what you said about the kind of the structure of the eyes and the way that the eye is is put together. I mean, what makes mm-hmm. it the kind of unique organ that it is? Well, what makes it the unique organ that it is is really what I think is most fascinating about it, and it's kind of where our field as ophthalmology started. So back in the early 1900s, when people were really starting to look heavily at the eye from a research component, ophthalmology developed out of comparative ecologists and general anatomists. And so people were studying the eyes of different species and seeing that there's all these different shapes and sizes and colors and structures and they're trying to relate them to the environment of these animals and figure out, like, why, what is this for? What are they doing? And once the field of medicine advanced and we started taking it beyond just human medicine and studying that of animals and veterinary medicine and ophthalmology arose, we kind of lost that as a profession. And we focused. We've done such a great job at advancing domestic animal ophthalmology. The, the, actually, our own Kirk Gillette here at Florida for for decades, worked in a, our main state textbook for that, has really advanced the field, but we lost a lot of our comparative scientist side that we had from the very beginning. And so the reason that there's such a unique and such a specific um, structure to every component within the eye is that they do need that. The animals that have those eyes do need that, those eyes to interact with their environment and just look out at how many different environments there are. Even with one small square foot of land, you have any number of animals that can occupy that, a deer that can stand on a patch of grass or a bird that can hunt something that's walking through the grass or that mouse that the bird is hunting is feeding off of something else that also has eyes, like small insects. And so the perspective of even that small little square foot of space is huge depending on when, what the species is. And the eyes for all those animals are very different to account for that. And you extrapolate that across animals that fly, animals deep at sea, those in the desert versus those in the jungle. You have an infinite number of possibilities. And modifying each little structure in the eye so that they can accurately capture the photons of light that they need to be able to convert it to a signal in their brain that is meaningful for them to interact with each other, to find the food they need, and to prevent them from becoming food is really why there's infinite, really every species of animal has an eye that's very different. Yeah, I mean, that is that is absolutely fascinating. And I think that many people listening to this program will will certainly acknowledge that the eye is kind of a miracle in and of itself. And, and maybe especially to us as human beings, for whom, for those of us who are sighted, our eyesight is the most important sense that we have. I mean, it's really how we take mm-hmm. in uh, the bulk of the information and how we interact kind of with the world around us. Uh, now, that is mm-hmm. not... 
that's not always the case for animals. I mean, you know, dogs and cats, for instance, have greater hearing or smell and so forth. Uh, but yeah. nevertheless, there are animals that you probably have seen whose eyesight is many times better than human beings' eyesight and for whom it is absolutely a life or death kind of sense for them. Yeah, certainly. And especially when we're speaking for wild animals and when we treat wild animals for eye disease, we definitely have to keep that into account. We have to know and understand the bird's ecology and the way they interact with their environment if we're going to try to treat them or consider treating them for possibility of release. And just from a welfare standpoint, you can't release a blind animal that's dependent on its vision in the wild because it's not humane. And so we definitely think about that. And I guess birds would be a great poster child to discuss from the beginning because they kind of have the full spectrum. Most birds you would consider to be very visual animals, uh, more so than any other sense, but there are the exceptions within the bird world. And a great example for the opposite of that being true would be kiwi mm. in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And kiwi definitely use vision. They have eyes set up for seeing in the dark, but they're small. They're not that they're not that good, and that's because they have other senses that are very important, like tactile feathers on the tips of their bills that they use to, to forage and dig around, and um, they also have a great sense of smell. Um, but other species of birds, for example, have vision that is considered far superior to humans, but also in different ways. So, for example, owls can see, uh, they have much more sensitive eyes. They can see much better at nighttime than we can. And some other raptors like eagles and hawks and falcons, they have greater acuity than we do, being able to see little rodents even from way up in the sky as they run through the grass. That has always fascinated me, the sense that that raptors have in their eyes that exceed our own sort of capacity for vision. In particular, not just not just the the night vision, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but the, as you say, the acuity. And I, I've often mm-hmm. w- wondered, you know, how a simulation of that might look for people to understand, because I, I think that we can all kind of see one of these uh, hawks or something circling around, and and it's way up there, and you know these animals manage to. I mean, I've seen it happen. I've seen uh, this. This was a, quite a while ago, but uh, I, I watch a hawk, probably a red-shouldered hawk, swoop down. It snatched a snake off the ground, not fifty mm-hmm. feet in front of me, and it just flew off with it. I mean, it, it just it seemed to me it appeared out of nowhere. It grabbed the snake, and then it was gone. And I'm sure the snake was very surprised too. Oh yeah, um, he wasn't expecting that. And so. Uh, you know, this this hawk may have been, you know, 75, 100 feet up in the air, and then it came down and grabbed it. Well, what does that look like to the hawk? Is there any way to even know? Yeah, that's been some of the challenge, really, in trying to figure out how animals see their world and to be able to share in that experience is because we try to often place our own visual experience in the eyes of the animal we're talking about. And it's hard because we are so familiar with our own experience. And so animals do this, for example, we'll talk about acuity. They increase acuity in a lot of different ways. And so one, as you just mentioned, this bird was pretty far away from the snake. So one thing they can do is they can increase the magnification. And so maybe the they're able, it's almost like a zoom factor. More so than that, it's like an increase in, um, how would you say it? Contrast. Oh, okay. So yeah, when we talk about our 2020 visual acuity, when we go come back from the optometrist, some of these birds may be 20 over 5, or it basically means that what 
we go to dogs, for example, who are about 20 over 60 or 20 over 80. Uh-huh. And so what we can see at 20 feet with resolution, a dog can see, excuse me, what we can see at um, 80 feet of resolution, a dog can see at 20 feet okay. with similar resolution. So yeah. it's just, yeah, the contrast between the background and the structure and how finely resolved it is, is what's been increased. Yeah. Okay. So then the, these, some of these raptors have especially, uh, are especially adept at doing that. And evolutionarily, this seems to have worked out for them. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and we can all kind of understand that. Now, many animals have exceptionally good night vision, and this includes everything from the cats who live in our homes to, as you mentioned, owls. Now, we can imagine mm-hmm. why nocturnal animals would have adapted, uh, their eyes would have adapted for this uh, during the course of evolution and natural selection and so forth. Now, I, I don't know that any of us can really... Uh, picture what this might look like to them, you know, I mean, I I think that all of us kind of have an idea of what like night vision goggles look like, but I don't pretend to to know if that's how it looks to these animals that have especially good night vision. And very much, very much it does. If you can imagine a a quality night vision camera where you lose a lot of the color because color is dependent on light. And so these eyes are set up to capture more light, and when you're able to gather more, it's just the same as a good quality night vision camera that uses infrared or LED lights to light up that space in a non-luminant way so that we don't see the light, but through the night vision lens, it's able to be um, lit up effectively. Yeah. And so when you're able to gather more light, you can kind of see that, but those are in mostly in black and white. You'll see little bits of color. Green is usually the color that kind of lingers the longest to be able to be seen uh, as light is decreased. But certainly some animals are set up to catch those very few photons of light that are out there. And the best example would be deep sea, some of the deep sea fish. Oh, of course. The only, only light they have are the bioluminescence from other structures and can be really, really faint. So. Yeah, where never in their life will they see sunlight. They they exist mm-hmm. in a world virtually without it. Now, how do animals that have especially good night vision achieve this? Is it is it a, a matter of just the pupils are dilated considerably more than ours are able to, or is it beyond that? Yeah, there's lots of different things. So one is... Um, Let's think about the ability to let more light into the eye. So a big wide pupil would definitely help, but a big cornea, the clear part you put your contact lens on. You see often see a big round globoid cornea, and you think of this in owls, and think of this in like a marmoset or a tarsier, for example, these nocturnal uh, primates, big round eyes. Um, they usually have a deep, a deep chamber there in the front of the eye between the lens and the cornea, allow more light to be gathered. And then in owls, they actually have tubular-shaped eyes. They're not round. They're elongated, Hmm. and that allows more light gathering capability. And then the final thing that's a huge contributor is the types of cells that are in the retina. And so everybody's heard of rods and cones. Well, cones are the cells that are used to gather color vision and and contribute towards visual acuity. Or rods are the the cells that specifically for for dim light, they're really densely packed and they help increase the sensitivity of the eye. So we would expect animals that are nocturnal to have a much higher proportion of rods than cones. Do any animals see beyond the kind of visual spectrum that we as human beings experience? 
That is to say, oh, oh, yeah. colors beyond just the kind of, uh, you know, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, and so forth. Yeah, very much so. And that's a whole other uh, feature of wild animal or exotic animal vision that is incredibly variable. And color vision is really interesting. So we see our main primary colors, or trichromats. A lot of our a lot of domestic species are kind of in the trichromat, dichromat range where they see certain two colors and maybe a combination of the two. But there's animals that can see even beyond the, the spectrum. So if we're going from the violet and blues up through the, the reds and, or excuse me, up through the yellows and greens and then oranges to reds, the very far end of the red spectrum beyond that is infrared. And some species have been documented to be able to see that. And then if you go to the opposite end, past the violet, you go to the ultraviolet, and there are species like birds, that some bird species that have been shown to be able to have that. But these things are not all set in stone. It's not a blanket statement. you got to be careful. And I have a good story about that. And, and I used to go with the, with the wildlife group to do goose roundup up in Indiana. And when the geese had become a flightless period, we would go check their bands to track them and monitor them for health and make sure everything is okay. And so... Um, in doing that, I had some friends that were very involved in that. And sometimes to help lure the geese in, they would have decoys set out. And the company came out with some new decoys that were supposed to be super um, realistic. And they had painted them with UV reflective paint to try to draw in more geese. And I thought it was odd just based on what I knew phylogenetically about birds related to geese and what their color vision spectrum was that um, the geese would have that. And so I did a study on goose size to look at the color vision and turns out they don't have the ability to see UV as I thought. And so uh, unbeknown to the company that produced these, it was actually artificial because the, the geese can't actually even see the UV reflective paint that was being uh, placed upon the decoys. So you have to be careful when the uh, same thing when we approach an animal clinically is that one assumption from an animal, just because it's a, a bird, for example, or a frog, doesn't mean that it's the same as all other birds and frogs. You have to really take care to know specifically before um, any treatment or any other options should be considered. Right. Okay. Here's where we need to take our first break, but we've got a lot more to go in this conversation with Dr. Brett Moore about exotic animal ophthalmology. I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFT-FM. This is our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. We're going to take just a short break right now, and we'll return in just a moment. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live on WUFTFM. My name is Dana Hill. My guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Brett Moore, and we're talking about exotic animal ophthalmology. Now, uh, Dr. Moore, we've, we've talked a bit about some of the kind of exceptional abilities that exotic animals have in terms of eyesight. Yeah, yeah and, and I'm sure that there are are many more amazing examples uh, from species that live under the sea, in the air, and uh, forests, and, and other places, in caves, and so forth. Um, there are 
probably many animals too that you know have limited need for exceptional eyesight. But I wonder if we can talk kind of a little bit about the structures of the eye as we move in to a part of a conversation where we're maybe going to talk about specific problems that might need addressing. Now, uh, we've so far we've mentioned like the pupil uh, and and whatnot. But w- what other what other components of the eye are, are critical um, in your work? Yeah, definitely. So the eye can be think can be thought of as kind of a, a globe with three main layers. And so the outer layer is kind of a fibrous layer. It provides structure to the eye. And then in the very front of the eye, that the cornea is part of that, the clear transparent part of the eye that you put your contact lenses on. That contributes to the eye optically, of course, and allowing for light gathering and it also has a refractive power to provide magnification and focusing of that light. The layer inside that next is going to be the vascular layer. This provides nourishment to the eye first and foremost. There's a a layer of that in the very back called the choroid, and then the iris, the colored part of our eye that forms the pupil, is also part of that, and the ciliary body directly behind that. And besides things like um, nourishment and removal of waste, it also does things such as it helps deform your lens to accommodate, like when you need to see near versus far. It helps move the pupil shape to let in or reduce the amount of light that can be brought in. And it also does important things like produce the fluid that's inside the eye and help with the circulation of that. And then finally, the inside layer is the neural layer. This is it consists of the retina, and the retina is a, is a thin, basically extension of the brain that actually takes single photons of light, converts them into an electrical signal, and transmit them, transmits them via the optic nerve up to the brain to be um, recognized. And so these three layers act in harmony together to really help you form an image. Yeah, okay, so there is, is a lot there, and many of mm-hmm. these components can have trouble, you know, that affects those components specifically. Um, What are some of the major issues that can affect the eyes of exotic animals and probably, you know, non-exotic animals as well? Yeah, each one of these conditions can have abnormalities that affect vision for sure, and they all contribute to that. Um, I guess starting from the front, the cornea, we often find it being susceptible to damage because it's exposed, right? And we have structures to help limit that damage. For example, eyelids, we blink when there's a sandstorm or when we anticipate something about ready to hit us, like debris. And also to clear that debris, if it does land on the cornea, we have the eyelids and the tear film to help remove that. But the cornea itself is definitely the most susceptible to damage, just given its position and its contact with the external environment. So we see a lot of corneal ulcers, and we see scratches and and things like that. Um, Other structures like the lens is ever popular for cataract development, and that can definitely limit vision. And so anything anything that can cause opacity within the, the pathway of light, so the cornea can become opaque if it's swollen with fluid or has a scratch and gets a scar, the lens can develop a cataract and become opaque and not let light through. Any of these things can reduce vision for sure. And then finally with the retina, we've heard of retinal detachments. We've heard of macular degeneration, uh, ret- other forms of retinal degeneration. 
this can be more, this is more commonly a neurologic problem, just as like anywhere else in the body where you have some sort of neurodegenerative disorder or um, detachment with sometimes with trauma, but other conditions too can cause that. And all this can contribute certainly to vision loss or decline. Are exotic animals more likely to experience trauma to the eye than domestic animals? So that's interesting. It's hard to answer because I think if a lot of times we don't see the eye damage in exotic animals, especially if they're wild, because they're either maybe they don't survive, maybe they do experience them, and we just don't find them as often because they die quickly because of how important the eye is and that loss of vision. But I imagine that most species in the wild don't they don't suffer from eye disease near as common because they they need it to survive and so they've developed in a way that allows for them to protect themselves and not engage in activities or behaviors that would damage their eyes readily. When we have animals and we bring them out of their natural environment the way they develop and domesticate them, problems certainly a lot arise and unfortunately a lot of what we treat in domestic animal ophthalmology is out of our own doing through through breeding over time. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which is something that, you know, is probably not commonly seen in wild animals. Um, mm, yeah, exactly. And I mean, because there are species who, you know, just the kind of structures of their bodies would make one think that the potential for eye injury is there. I'm thinking of like sharks who I understand don't even really have much of the ability to like even close their eyes in, in a meaningful way. And yet they've adapted strategies to kind of like protect their eyes. If, if I'm recalling correctly. Yeah. Yeah. So from an, not from a disease standpoint, uh, which is kind of what I spoke to on a second ago, uh, I guess I misunderstood, but from an injury standpoint, certainly, and everybody has mechanisms to do that. And sharks, for example, they, have a very strong retractive response. And so they don't really have eyelids, but they're able to roll and pull their eyes back. And so if you catch a picture of a shark as it's going in for a bite of prey, you'll see that their eyes are kind of rolled back in their sockets to protect them. Other species have things like, for example, a lot. some frogs have, just as dogs and cats do, what's called a third eyelid. It's a little membrane that will flick up that helps uh, protect the eye as well. But in frogs, they have one that actually has a, uh, some of them have a clear spot. It's tissue that's also clear, just like the cornea. And so they can close that third eyelid over their eye to protect it and still be able to see through it a little bit when to look for predators or something. Yeah. I mean, all of this is really totally fascinating, but I do get your point that an animal in the wild who has had a significant eye injury, I mean, let, let's say we're talking about one of these hawks, right, who has mm-hmm. been used to having amazing vision that it relies on to acquire its meals, let it lose some eyesight, and, and what happens then? It, it just has a harder time finding food, and, you know, that may lead to this animal uh, dying of starvation even. I mean, probably a, a hawk would have a harder time uh, finding food if it was just counting on like being on the ground with squirrels and hopping over and catching them. Um, so, so that's mm-hmm. not going to do it really well. Um, so that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then and then also I wonder, you know, the, the exotic animals that you do see that have come in um, f- that have eye injuries, is, are the eye injuries kind of uh, part of an 
a greater injury that has maybe occurred, and the eyes are just a component of a larger injury. Yeah, so from from an injury standpoint, when we see trauma causing injury in wild animals, and as it affects the eye, there's there's oftentimes uh, more organ or body systems that are affected. Most importantly, the head. And so we see a lot of raptors, owls and hawks, for example, that come in for eye trauma, and it's it's by far the most common thing we see with them, whether they ran into something or, uh, unfortunately, car car accidents are pretty common for these guys, and we'll have them brought in, and we definitely see sometimes neurologic signs because they hit their head hard as well. Um <clears throat> Yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, it it does. I mean, and so uh, treating these animals is it is it challenging to treat these animals when there's probably not as uh, robust uh, a literature on treating injuries to exotic animals as there would be for dogs or cats. I mean, do you have to sometimes improvise and, and you know use your best judgment, or or are you able to find? Um, you know, information about how to successfully do some of these procedures based on, you know, what I have to guess is just a, a smaller number of procedures that have been performed overall. You're definitely right. There is a very limited, a very limited um, body of literature of involving exotic animals, especially if you compare it to per species, how much is out there. Uh, there's, we are actually putting out here at UF a uh, new textbook on exotic animal ophthalmology, and it's, let's say it's about 1,400, 1,500 pages, and that comprises all species, which is tens of thousands, and of course, only the ones that have been examined, been treated, and what's been written out there, but also personal experience across 40 or 50 of our um, colleague specialists. If you, across the world... And so if, if you take all that and look at our dog cat, our primary dog cat book, I mean, there's 2,500 pages there. So per species, yes, there is way less. And so we have to often use what we know, use the skills that we've developed and, and trained for specific procedures and understanding of tissue and really thinking about just the structure of the eye and how it differs and how we would best approach that if we're going to do a surgery, for example. Uh, that does come with experience, and it's actually one of the fun things, I think, about exotic animal ophthalmology. I'm going to think about outside the box a little bit. But can I assume that just because there's not a, a robust body of literature about the treatment of a particular eye condition in exotic animals, that that doesn't stop kind of intrepid veterinarians from performing some sort of uh, a, a, providing some sort of aid to these injured uh, animals or animals with eye problems, right? I mean, you still probably try to help them as best as you can. Yeah, yeah. And the, generally, there's there's going to be pretty big similarities across uh, whatever the procedure or the treatment, but there's just going to be small, subtle differences. And so, for example, if you just look at the eyelids of different animals, let's say they get an eyelid laceration, they tear their eyelid on something and, with trauma, whether it's another animal or something in the environment. And the eyelid structure, the thickness, the the presence of feathers or slimy skin, the the different layers that are in it, the, the amount of musculature, 
all of these things contribute to how you would re repair it, but the repair is generally the same. You just have to think through it a little bit differently, like, well, what kind of suture and what kind of pattern? And are they going to be healing? Would they generally be underwater? So do I need to try to keep them out? Or if they can't be out, then how do I uh, repair this so that it's safe to be underwater the whole time while healing and things like that? Yeah. And when you go to treat some of these animals, are you using much of the same equipment that you would use if it were, say, a, a domestic animal? Yeah, very much. It, the only thing that really changes would be size sometimes. And eye, eye conditions in general involve very small equipment if you're talking instruments for surgery. But the so really, if you get down to some of really tiny animals, then the size of those would benefit being smaller, but we use the, really the same types. Yeah. Oh, and now, we need to take uh, one more break, and when we come back, I really do want to ask you about some of the common procedures that you do, if there is such a thing as a common uh, procedure as far as exotic animals go, uh, because uh, I have talked with some of your colleagues before on this program about kind of the common procedures for, say, you know, horse eyes or for cat and dog eyes. And there are probably maybe some that you might uh, treat animals for. But right now I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Brett Moore, and we'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Brett Moore, and we're talking about exotic animal ophthalmology. And you had hinted, Dr. Moore, a little bit earlier about kind of some of the things that you might need to treat an animal for, let's say a corneal ulcer or something like that. I and mean, what are some other what are some other common treatments that you perform? Some of the common it really depends on the group of animals, so it's interesting to see if you speak of a certain group of animal, a veterinary ophthalmologist would probably have a picture in their mind of what kind of condition is more likely than others just coming into it. And so we briefly mentioned earlier about raptors getting trauma to the eye, and so we often would expect signs of trauma throughout the eye when, when they are brought in just right off the bat. But other species, for example, um, Snakes in general have a very common problem with the surface of their eye related to their shedding cycles. And so we find out a lot that if a snake had an improper shed and some of that debris is the skin, they actually shed the surface of their cornea, or it's not the cornea, the cornea is covered by a false eyelid. It looks just like the cornea, it's clear, there's, but there's two layers there instead of there being just one. And so it's almost like having a permanent contact that's skin on top of your cornea. They actually shed part of that every time they shed their skin. And if husbandry is not lined up right, uh, whether it's humidity, their environment, or they're, they're ill for another reason, they may not shed properly. And as a result, they can retain that cap, which is called a spectacle. And if they retain that, then it can cause further problems. And so we often are dealing with the the snakes having those spectacles retained and trying to get them to exude those on their own. Is that a challenge? Is, uh, is that a challenge? I mean, that's, that sounds pretty complicated. 
Yeah, it can be. A lot of times we will try to get them through just medically until their their next shed cycle. Um, but it can lead to other complications. Sometimes when they get well, – snakes also get something else called um, pseudobupthalmus, and that is because the, between that top layer, the, the part that they shed part of, the spectacle, and the cornea – they actually do have a tear film still, but it's in between those two layers. And so rather than running off the surface of the eye down into an, a, a little duct that goes into the nose or into the mouth, it runs between those two layers but into a similar duct. And so we see that when they get problems with that duct, those two layers can swell. The amount of fluid in there can build up. It makes their eye look huge and bulging, but it's really not. It's actually just the bulging of those two layers. And so all that can sometimes be related to improper shedding, improper husbandry, mouth disease, systemic unwellness, and all that can contribute to those two conditions. And we see those uh, by far and away the most frequently in terms of snakes and treating them can be a little challenging. Yeah. I mean, also because, you know, I mean, if you're talking about snakes, I mean, could these include venomous snakes? Yeah, yeah, and examining those is really challenging and treating them for sure. Yeah, uh, I mean, because, again, this is a, an example of how, I mean, look, with any animal that's getting a, a treatment for an eye problem, probably general anesthesia is employed because you just need this animal to be very, very still. Uh, but nobody wants uh, a venomous snake to kind of come out too early of an, of its anesthesia, uh, or a tiger, for instance, uh, I mean that would be oh, yeah. that'd be bad news. Uh, I mean you must have colleagues uh, who are anesthesiologists uh, who are standing by at all times when you're dealing with some uh, dangerous animals. Yeah, for sure. We have generally the it's a big production for certain species to do eye procedures, and we always have work very closely with our exotic or zoo veterinarians. And uh, sometimes we'll get anesthesiologists involved as well, especially ones that have. A lot of times it comes down to being people that are really well-versed in that specific type of animal. Like I've done giraffe eye surgeries, and we've had to fly in a specific anesthesiologist from Safari Park um, in San Diego because he is the guy for very large animal, uh, wild animal anesthesia. Or um, sometimes when we have big apes, for example, like gorilla anesthesia, we will bring in certain people for that. So. It's usually a big production. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I can't even imagine how one does a surgery on a giraffe. I mean, the, is the giraffe lying down? I mean, where, where do you have space to do this? Yeah, that's part of the challenge is getting them um, safely down to the ground and then safely, most importantly, safely back up is one of the challenges with giraffes. But um, and it's, sometimes it's hard because when they go down, you kind of try to guide them into the position that you want them and that big of an animal, it, they're kind of where you are. So I'm, I've done giraffe eye surgeries sitting on, on hay, hay bales in between a, a door, a door frame because that's where their head was, and we we had to do it then or or, or not do it at all. So fortunately, it's always worked out, but it takes a little MacGyvering sometimes. Right, right. Uh, I mean, I wonder, you know, in in instances in which you are treating an animal that is considered threatened or endangered i mean is is that even more pressure on you because these are animals that are 
uh, you know, uh, I, I think of them as being precious, you know, I mean, there's so few of them. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking about something mm-hmm. like a, a, you know, a gorilla, which is like this majestic animal, um, you know, but also, you know, suffering from habitat loss and so forth. Um, and I suppose giraffes have, have their own kind of uh, pressures on them. And there are many others. And you've probably treated some of these animals. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of planning that goes into it because we'll have the whole team, all the veterinarians involved. We'll have a plan, a rundown. We'll have a a dry run even. And we want to make sure that we're as efficient and quick as possible to get the job done because we want to minimize the time under anesthesia. We want to make sure that there's no unforeseen complications we're not prepared for. And so it's not just the speed and efficiency, but uh, from an anesthetic standpoint, but for the eye procedure as well, I want to make sure that we do everything we can to maximize the visual outcome because some of these animals, like especially if we're talking about birds or something, we want we don't want to affect or limit their natural ability to to desire to or to attempt to reproduce or whatever the goal is within their conservation program. And um, certainly a, a poor visual outcome can result in that with certain species. So, Yeah. Now, uh, getting back to some of the problems that they might have, do any of these exotic animals ever have cataracts, for instance? Yeah, we do cataract surgeries and everything from little frogs and fish all the way to the, the biggest animals you can think of, elephants. Yeah. I mean, how big is an elephant's eye? Is it substantially uh, bigger than, you know, I mean, elephants are pretty large animal, but is it significantly bigger than, say, a giraffe's eye? It's funny. I, I love this game with my students because, um, surprisingly, it's not. So the four biggest terrestrial, so land vertebrate eyes, are in order ostrich and then giraffe and then horse. or Yeah, and then horse. And so elephants down the list even farther. There's some bird eyes that are bigger, like an emu eye is probably a little bit bigger than an elephant. And um, so it's not always by body mass. I mean, even head size. I mean, the head of an ostrich is much smaller than the head of an elephant. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, um, you know, so some of these animals, maybe you've got a kind of a bigger area to work with. I mean, is it easier to work on an eye that's just big? Yeah. Generally, like I'd say a medium-sized eye is best. You get to the really big ones if you're doing surgery inside the eye. There's a challenge because sometimes you need instruments that are longer than what you are typically made, and it's hard to use the ones that are available to do the same job, small ones are obviously hard for because they're so small, and sometimes it's just there's no space. There's nothing small enough to be able to do certain things. So, uh, but yes, generally, kind of a little bit larger ones are easier in a lot of ways. Yeah, uh, and and so uh, ultimately, I mean, it sounds like there are efforts made to treat eye problems of almost any kind of exotic animal that you can think of. Uh, but, you know, are these generally animals that maybe belong to zoos or other, like, are they part of, you know, some sort of wildlife sanctuary? Or are these animals that are sometimes found in the wild that are being treated? Well, if I did, when you're talking about really unique or animals that aren't seen very commonly, we, the zoos and other collections are definitely where we are called to treat them more commonly. But depending on the region of the world, you're definitely asked to treat um, wild animals specific to that region at rehab centers or even brought into the clinic like here at UF. And so, and with Florida having quite a wide variety of different pet possibilities, we see a lot of different um, 
we would call exotic animals as well, but because uh, they're not traditionally kept as pets, and so we have uh, those to treat as well. But certainly, zoos would be your broadest collection of animals to that we would experience treating. Right, and there are a number of zoological parks in the state of Florida, and I imagine that many of them do have veterinarians on staff, but in instances in which Mm -hmm. the surgery might be complex or require a real specialist at some sort of institution like, say, the University of Florida, um, I imagine y'all are are called out to do that. I mean, in which case you probably go to them or do they come to you? Oh, both. Yeah. It depends on what we need. Like if we need, if it's a really intense surgery that needs our microscopes and our other things that we do eye surgery underneath, and we'll, we'll try to do it here if we can. But if it's not a possibility, given whatever species it is or something, and we're able to do what we can afar, then we, we'll, we'll go there sometimes. Can you really spec- best for the patient. Yeah, of course. Now, in a little bit of time we have left, can you speculate about what the future holds in the treatment of ophthalmological ophthalmological problems in exotic animals. Yeah, so all the work that we've done over the past 50 years in domestic animals, learning about the genetic components of ocular disease, learning about um, really how to treat some of them very specifically given the exact anatomy of those um, species, dogs and cats, I think we are going to be heading in that direction for exotic animals. There's just so many, and so it's hard to predict which ones and how we're going to go about that. But as we continue to gather more information relating really them, the animals and their um, specific ecologies to one another, trying to figure out what even what some little structures are for and why they're so different, as we gain in that knowledge, I think we'll be able to advance their medicine by uh, specific studies and also through experience um, with our all the colleagues from around the world. Yeah. Oh, man, I sure hope so, too, because, I mean, I I consider it a very noble thing that you're doing, treating uh, these animals that are, you know, not just often majestic, but sometimes the opposite of that, sometimes very small, sometimes very unimpressive. But still, I mean, these are creatures that uh, are worthy of our respect and kindness, you know, the, and, and I'm, glad that, mm-hmm. I'm glad that you're out there doing it. And I really am grateful for your time today, and I enjoyed this conversation a whole lot. Well, I did as well, and thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Dr. Brett Moore is from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine. I also want to thank Sarah Carey for her help with the program. I'm Dana Hill. I hope that you will join me for a future episode of Animal Airwaves Live. Bye-bye. 